my name is Amanda Melindo. And I'm Mina Vargas. And you are listening to episode number two of Creative Confessionals. A podcast for radically honest conversations about art, design, and creative entrepreneurship from diverse perspectives. Whether you're joining us for the first time or you're tuning into the second podcast in a row, we are so glad you're here. In this episode, we're interviewing Estrella Payton, an interdisciplinary artist and the communications and community engagement manager for the City of Phoenix's Office of Arts and Culture. But before we get started, we wanted to share a couple quick announcements. First, we wanted to let you know the official podcast schedule so you know when to anticipate hearing our beautiful voices. New episodes will be premiering every other Monday until December. After that, we'll be on a short break until season two. If you visit creativeconfessionals.com, you can find a calendar so you can see which interviews are premiering next and sign up for email updates if that's more your style. Next, I am super excited to share that I'll be jurying Color Balance, an exhibition for DontSmile.com, a space devoted to showcasing photography by women artists. Color Balance seeks to elevate the work of female photographers of color. So if that sounds like you, I would love for you to submit your strongest work from any photographic genre. In addition to potentially having your work featured, you'll be making a big impact on the future of this podcast. All proceeds raised through the exhibition will go to After Art and Creative Confessionals so we can keep doing this work and highlighting the experiences of underrepresented artists and designers. Visit don't-smile.com submit to learn more. And I will put a link in the show notes. And another completely free way you can support us is by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. That would be amazing, and we would love you forever. But now, let's get to it. We covered a lot of ground in this episode, and Estrella has a ton of information to offer. Yeah, she really opened my eyes to what it's like to give it your all to the arts, both as a community support through her job in arts admin, to continuing her creative practice, and even expanding into public art. Yeah, so some quick background before we dive in. Estrella graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Kansas City Art Institute in 2007, and received her MFA from Arizona State University in 2015. Formally trained as a printmaker, her artwork explores the use of building materials, constructed spaces, movement, place-centering experiences, and more. She is interested in power and privilege, cultural conditioning, and systematic inequity. That, combined with her lived experience as a stateside Puerto Rican, motivates her to complicate physical spaces, reorienting a viewer's experience and perspective in institutional and organized environments. Estrella has exhibited and produced collaborative projects in the U.S. and Mexico. She has been the recipient of artist residencies in Guadalajara, New York, Puerto Rico, and New Mexico. All right, without further ado, here is our interview with Estrella Payton. I think a lot about how the built environment has a lot of effect on how we experience the world and how we experience each other in those spaces. And there's a lot of research that I do. My visual art practice is a critical practice, so I think a lot about other disciplines, other fields, and how it could relate to my interests and implementing that in some sort of creative way and creative expression. I am also an arts administrator. In my professional career, I've always worked as an arts administrator, and I find there to be 
more and more ties to the work that I'm doing as a visual artist and some of the research and interest that I have um, relating to the work that I do nine to five, mm -hmm. especially recently with the job that I have uh, with the city of Phoenix. Yeah. So how did you get into arts administration or just an administration in general? Yeah. So what's interesting is I've always found myself being a person that needs some sort of structure. And so I could keep a calendar, you know, I tried to organize lists and things like that. And finding myself in situations like you know, being in high school and being on student council or in college and undergrad, thinking about how to organize my classmates and participating in um, student government. So I ended up at one point just participating and starting to join clubs that led me to being student body president where I went to undergrad. And I also was a student ambassador uh, where I went to undergrad and that meant um, being a tour guide and having some students shadow me and I, I guess between the two um, having to be organized and having to think about conveying ideas really quickly to other people about um, you know something like a college that led me to um, get an opportunity basically to apply for a job as an admissions counselor at Kansas City Art Institute mm -hmm. so I you know was 22 I finished college and um, I had a job at a retail store. I worked at Paper Source. And mm, you know, Paper I Source. love Paper Source. <laughs> it is sort of amazing. It's like magical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole converted section is like, sometimes I just can't believe that people don't know it exists. Yeah. I'm really glad that there's a Paper Source here in Phoenix. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that your experience working there hasn't ruined it because yeah. I know so many, you know, so many retail jobs, yeah. people, you know, you love the place and then you meet somebody that has worked there and it's a horror story. So I'm very glad that you still have a love for paper stories. Yeah, I loved it. So it was one of four jobs, maybe one of five jobs I held simultaneously when I was a student. Kansas City Art Institute is a private college and it definitely comes with a private school tuition. Oh yeah. Um, I was really fortunate in that I was able to live at home to save some money and then I also was an RA. I was a resident assistant so I had free, free uh, room and board at one point. Basically I was on a rotating debt so uh, mm -hmm. the way that the school functioned was there was summer break like every other college and then there was also winter break. There was a winter term and so I never took classes during that time. I couldn't really afford those credit hours and um, I ended up working and it was 45 days. So I would like work full time mm -hmm. and then maintain some jobs while the semester was going on. But one of my jobs was at Paper Source and yeah. I graduated from undergrad and I was working there. I worked with several people who also went to art school and those who were just like super fun, creative people. And we were making stuff every day and it was a blast. But I was really confused because I thought, you know, I just got this, I just got a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree mm -hmm. and I had done all sorts of work thinking about why this degree matters. I actually put together grad school applications and I never submitted them. I was really fortunate in undergrad that we did have a, a portion of our studio practice was professional practice mm -hmm. and that was embedded into the studio coursework. That's awesome. That's so really many... Cool. 
colleges and universities don't have that for the arts. Right. Yeah. Or they're separate classes that right. you take, you know, they're almost like they're yeah. electives. <laughs> yeah. It should be like yeah. required. The the studio structure was uh, six studio credits mm-hmm. and um, there was basically your cohort was together. So in printmaking, we were all together and we all um, did critiques together. We made work together, kind of like in the same stride. And then we also did professional practice. Mm-hmm. So one of the things was putting together sort of mock um, grad school applications. So writing the statement of intent, putting together your portfolio, basically getting all the way up to a point where you could just click submit. And so we shared all of that material. So mm-hmm. I, I had thought about graduate school at one point and, you know, organized those materials. I didn't actually think that grad school was going to be a thing for me, yeah. especially considering I didn't know how, I didn't know how to function really in the world as an artist yet. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, why would I just continue to go to school? Yeah. So do you, would you say that your professional practices curriculum, was it mostly focused on preparing you for grad school or was it? It was a whole host of things. So, I mean, this was, this was like 2006 and mm-hmm. seven. So like the art world was really six, totally different. Not entirely I mean, different. A little bit. I would, I would definitely say that access to quick and easy ways mm-hmm. to tighten up your pub, the public perception yes. of, of who you are as a creative person um, it was a little bit harder. Yeah. So like the whole, I, the whole concept of, of uh, creating a website just seemed like a real, really daunting task. Yeah. And actually one of my professional development, um, like sections was learning how to use Dreamweaver and yes. getting all of your photos, like photos of your portfolio to be web ready. Oh my gosh. It's like, yeah. does anyone do that anymore? Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I was in even when I was in college, which wasn't very long ago, well, when you were in grad school, I took a really short, it was supposed to be a web programming class, and they were trying to get us to use Dreamweaver, and I was like, what? Why? Like, why? And so I, I dropped it. But yeah. I don't, um, I, I guess the point is, I feel even, you know, from 2012-ish to now, it's kind of changed a lot. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, just the fact that, I want to say it was probably, so I've had my website, estreapayton.com, like an official capacity since maybe 2012 Mm -hmm. and it was one of those things where it's like I just need to stop thinking that I I came from a mindset of your artistic website needs to be as creative as you are and it's your brand it's your it's the representation of who you are in the world and so almost you know I kind of got bogged down in thinking like my name needs to be a logo and like, you know, the functionality Mm -hmm. of like hovering or swiping over something needs to be cool and like meaningful. And it's like, no, you just need to be (laughs) Googleable. People need to see what you're about, you know? Um, so anyway, gosh, that was a long rambling thing, but, um, so I did, (laughs) so I did professional practice in school. Mm -hmm. I was a student ambassador. I had a bajillion jobs and I also often found myself um, in um, in kind of places of representation where I was like the student representative for, um, well, I was a student body president, so I got to sit with the board of trustees at the college that I went to. I also just, something that I'll, I'll probably say a lot is just saying yes. I just said yes to everything and I showed up. And I didn't always feel like I was prepared. I didn't know, I mean, all the things like, am I dressed right? 
you know, like I was one of few students of color at the college that I went to. And so to be invited into spaces, knowing that it was going to be very wealthy white people that were, mm -hmm. they already had a perception of what an artist was. And then like to think maybe inviting me into the space, and this is totally presumptuous and, and you know, it's just something that's in the back of my head. Yeah, but, no, totally. Um, you know, maybe being invited into the space was like an act of charity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I didn't want to present myself like a charity case or something like that. So yeah. anyway, I showed up and was always trying to be at the things, essentially. Yeah. I think I, I definitely experienced that, but maybe not so much in a, I've never thought of it as an act of charity, but almost as a, you want me there because I'm different. Mm -hmm. or, like a token. Or like, not a token, <laughs> but I'm there to represent somebody that is of a different background. Or it's like, like, oh, we got to hear this story from this young brown woman. Right. You know, ooh, what a, you know, what an interesting story. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. There, there's something, there's just... Something laid over, not necessarily the words that are used by people, but the behavior. So sometimes mm -hmm. there's a lot of weight in the unsaid. Like um, tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of that to say, I've struggled between feeling comfortable, assuming roles of like being organ like an, an organizing role or a leadership role, um, but it's come pretty naturally, even mm -hmm. though I feel like I'm a type B personality, um, mm -hmm. but I have to, I find myself often functioning as a type A, but I'm definitely not type A. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I graduated, was working retail. I got a phone call. Estrella, there's a job opportunity in the admissions office at Kansas City Art Institute. We would love for you to apply. They already knew who I was because I was a tour guide and they kind of ran that, um, that campus visit program. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sat on it. And I was just like, oh, God, am I going to be that person that, like, graduated and then immediately goes to work for the same school that you just went to? Mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason, that weighed on me heavily, like, you know, failure to launch or something like yeah. that. And then also I didn't know what it would be that I was promoting um, or, like, working toward when I hadn't, again, I hadn't actually gotten to live as an artist. Yeah. So I sat on that job opportunity and finally I applied. I got the job and through um, being an, an admissions counselor, I learned a lot about how to make a budget, how to create a travel itinerary for like four months, making professional connections with teachers all over the country, with arts programs, how to use certain kind of research tools, you know, sometimes I think that goes really mm -hmm. overlooked, just researching. Um, what kind of websites or what um, tools or where to look where to look yeah. exactly uh, yeah I did that job for five years and I, I learned a lot about event planning I was planning some pretty big campus visit programs essentially once a month we had a huge Saturday event that was um, an open house type of thing and then uh, once a year uh, there was National Portfolio Day mm -hmm. National Portfolio Day Association is for um, independent colleges of art and design to uh, gather together. So anywhere between, you know, maybe about 25 to 40 colleges coming together in one place. And it sort of looked like the structure of a college fair, but mm -hmm. instead of it being just like tables to pick up materials to learn about a school, the tables were empty and young people and people interested in um, 
in learning about those colleges would bring their portfolio. Oh, so it's kind of like a mass portfolio, casual portfolio review? Yep, That's exactly. Really cool. Yeah, That is cool. That is so cool. I've never heard so, of it. put a oh, portfolio gosh. together like last semester to get into yeah. Milestone, and it was the most stressful thing like I've ever done. Yeah. Like, and it we were was, all like dying. Like. It, and, it, and it is a stressful thing. Yeah. Like, I, do, I often do it when I'm trying to, you know, get opportunities and stuff still, but especially for, I mean, I was mostly working with traditional students, so high school students thinking about immediately applying to college, mm-hmm. and I, I knew what that was like. Yeah. I knew what it felt like to be like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing, and that intimidation factor sure. between like, I'm just a kid, I made these drawings in these art classes that I, t- I yeah. took in high school. So immediately I started a process like, how do I get information to, to these students really quickly in a kind way that was also um, making sure that they that they felt encouraged no matter what mm-hmm. because let me tell you I mean not everyone had an awesome portfolio not everyone had a terrible terrible portfolio they yeah. were you know always somewhere in the middle but the fact that they showed up and they wanted to wait online and they wanted to you know speak to me about this school that I felt very passionate about. Mm-hmm. I loved undergrad. I had a blast and I think you know situations like going to art school, getting to hang out with creative people and make work and stay up late and do weird things, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also a small school in a city that I love, and yeah, all of that stuff. So through being an admissions counselor, I learned about um, portfolio preparation and how that could kind of translate to people very quickly. I also taught while I was working as an admissions counselor. Mm-hmm. I was able to teach summer high school portfolio prep classes. Oh, that's fun. I also had a, like little teaching gigs working at um, the public library. Mm-hmm. So the um, this is in Kansas City, Missouri. The central library, so sort of like Burton Bar, was the um, Plaza Library in Kansas City. And they had an area that they called the art spot. So I was teaching um, elementary and middle school art classes and stuff there. I've always kind of had to maintain gigging and working full time mm-hmm. since I graduated from undergrad. Yeah, and so amongst all of that, were you still making your own work as well? Yes and no. I also, the first year after undergrad and basically the, the transition was I graduated in May, I worked and like floated around for a little bit and I got the job at the end of July. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it really wasn't that long. I, you know, it was relatively quick to yeah. land a full-time job, um, but it was like, you know, diving in head first. So I had this full-time job, and basically, you know, I'm fresh out of undergrad. All of my clothes are like weird studio clothes, you know, so it's like, <laughs> yes, uh, how do I? <laughs> they smell like chemicals. Like, I totally know that. They're covered in charcoal. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's also like, okay, so I have this professional job that basically yeah. is... Um, representing a college to, you know, a section of the country that doesn't know anything about Kansas City, doesn't know anything Mm -hmm. about the school necessarily. Maybe they've, you know, um, heard of people who graduated from there and they can look at artwork and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But ultimately, it's like I became this face, this representation of the school, and I needed to strike this balance between being myself and being a young creative person, but then also wanting to be taken seriously. Yeah. And, um... You know, the ultimate thing is being an admissions counselor is you're trying to get people to 
come to the college. Mm-hmm. Effectively, it's a sales job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I was selling a $40,000 a year education. Right. And so when I think about the types of people that I was talking to, um, I needed to be able, gosh, I mean, it's sort of a bummer, but I had to learn how to code switch mm-hmm. in talking to um, the person who was eventually going to be attending the school, hopefully, mm-hmm. versus a teacher versus someone who is maybe going to help that person pay for school yeah. or like yeah, co-sign sure. on a loan. Yeah, Because yeah. ultimately, more times than not, I was working with um, a student's parents. Yeah. And parents were very much like, and why should my kid come <laughs> to school here? I definitely, I got up downs, you know, like looking at, looking at who I was and like, oh, what are you about sort of a thing. Yeah. yeah. I would visit high schools and um, people would think I was a new student. Here I was, I was fresh out of undergrad. I have this arts administrative job. I get to feel and be creative sort of. I'm talking mm-hmm. all the time about art and the potential that studying academically, training academically to be an artist can affect and be a positive motivator for for career development. Yeah. Um, Fully believing it, but then also feeling like, um, you know, I had to learn what that was in real time as I was talking about it with other people. Yeah. It's interesting that you're you're talking about pursuing a creative education but that creative education also developed all of these more technical skills or organizational skills it's kind of like a funny feedback loop almost like yeah I mean and what's really funny is I felt like um the the sharpest skills that I got to develop was from all of my extracurricular stuff Mm -hmm. so I was an undergrad I was in printmaking and I um I was a part of um, Southern Graphics Council, and that was like, uh, you know, extra stuff. You didn't, yeah. I didn't have to do that for school. Right. And um, when I was a senior in undergrad, I ended up serving as a student representative on the board of, mm-hmm. uh, or the steering committee for Southern Graphics Council. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I had, I like, had the opportunity to learn how that organization worked and how conferences were planned and timelines and how that was structured, all of that stuff. I wouldn't have known that if I was just like a student going to classes, getting good grades, having an exhibition or submitting the stuff that you need to graduate and then being done. Mm -hmm. And that kind of time management really helped me out figuring out like, okay, school's important, but so is um, getting some fun passion projects going at the same time. Yeah. Um, So I did, I was an admissions counselor for five years and I really started to shape what I wanted to do as an admissions counselor. And um, I had some really tough years because ultimately I want, I just love and craved experiences with people. And Mm -hmm. it was really hard for me to like seal the deal, you know, like seal the deal and say like, will you, you know, enroll this fall? Because mm-hmm. sometimes I would meet students and I'm like, oh my God, don't come. <laughs> like, you are great and you will be successful, but it is so expensive to go here yeah. and no amount of money is going to help you. And oh my gosh, was, that's so hard. It was. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, like I came from a background of not having very much money, qualifying for all of the federal um, grants and loans that... Someone who basically I had a zero 
um, expected family contribution. Yeah. And um, that, you know, I was very fortunate as, uh, as, you know, being a U.S. citizen, I was fortunate to be able to file the FAFSA Mm -hmm. and, you know, be able to get those loans and stuff like that. But while I was an admissions counselor, it actually, that was a a time for me that I started to learn more about politics and education and politics. It wasn't like while I was a student getting embedded into, like, I just signed away, you know, like, having to owe all of this money. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, And and you're at that age when you're 18, 19, 20, you're too young to even realize what that is going to mean for the rest like of your life. Like, how much money, like, you don't even have, like, a real, like, super solid concept yeah. of, like, money or how long it'll take you to pay something back. Totally. Yeah. Well, and like, there's there's a portion of a dose of reality that I did have. Yeah. My, yeah. my mom um, has always been in banking, and she was always very leery of credit mm-hmm. and getting credit cards and, like, don't spend money you don't have, and yeah. she instilled that yeah. in me. Um, and so I knew like, this is a risky thing. Like this is scary, mm-hmm. but to risk an education at that time, remember this is mm-hmm. at that time it was 2003 and it's like, education is important to me. Like in order to get an education, you get student loans. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that there's a lot of advocacy about like m- making that change because yeah. it's a lot of money. Yes. But, um, while I was an admissions counselor, the area that I traveled to the most and the, um, the people that I worked with the most were in the Southwest and West Coast. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally, here I am now. <laughs> um, but I was introduced to so many talented and amazing young people that were undocumented. Mm-hmm. And maybe for the first time on mass, I experienced their stories and meeting their families mm-hmm. and getting to see their schools and how they had to function um, you know, some of the people, some of the students that I worked with were, stu- they were kids, you know, like they're yeah. in school, they're trying to get good grades, um, they're worried about their families, they're having to also work, mm-hmm. yeah. they're, you know, kind of assisting being breadwinners at, in the house, mm-hmm. and they also just want to be young people, they want to yeah. like drive and have fun with their friends and, you know, I don't know, do, do all the things that it means to be a teenager and to be free. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started working with them, it was like, oh my God, you know, like you deserve to be in these spaces, yet there's all of these barriers that are, yeah. are preventing you from having the freedom to even apply. Right. Yeah. So I started getting into, you know, kind of diving in and asking questions about um, systems like, hey, so we're a private school. Why do we require someone to put their social security number on a college application? Mm-hmm. At this point in the game, they're just applying to be eligible for admission, not yeah. about paying, not about, you know, anything else. And my questions created a change. And, you know, at that point, it was like, oh, yeah, we don't need that anymore. And they removed the requirement for a social security number on the application. Mm -hmm. And so things like that was, you know, at that time, like the DREAM Act was being discussed and um, all of these things were just sort of swimming in my head. Um, And I felt like I had a real interest in working with young people. I had an interest in just, you know, well, what I had an interest in was finding ways to encourage people creatively and making sure that they had access to do so and they had the tools they needed. Do you feel like that's something that can be done outside of a college? I do. Mm -hmm. I really do. However, 
I, I think in some creative fields, well, in, in, creative, in the creative industry, going to school gives you an immediate network mm-hmm. and professors, if they're good, and yeah. if, you pro- <laughs> if you poke them and prod them, yeah. they then also expand their network to be yours. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, when I was being a bad admissions counselor, um, and I was just like, <laughs> don't come to school here, like, do your own thing. It's like, but if you don't go to school, you have to show up. Absolutely. It's like, yeah. go, like, form a collective, you know, go to the art walks, keep making work, document it, like, take yeah. photos, figure out how to take good photos. And right. absolutely have a web presence. Get your stuff, get like a free Wix website or do, you know, you have a, an active creative only Instagram page at that time. Yeah. There was no Instagram, but yeah. like, you know, figuring out, you know, I would always say to people like have a web presence, yeah. get your stuff out there and make sure people know who you are mm-hmm. and follow through. But I right. do think that it takes a much longer time when you don't have a network and oftentimes school is and easy. It's low-hanging fruit. School is a network. And I mean, I have to admit, I'm not from here. And I think it is, I I just can't imagine what it must feel like to not have a personal network of people that care for you and want to encourage you creatively, and then also not be associated with ASU. Yeah. I mean, I can walk into spaces and say that I have my master's in fine art, from ASU and people are like oh and you worked with so-and-so and and you did this and you're familiar with that and so it's like I know what that means I know the kind of privilege that comes with education Mm -hmm. but I also think that if you're a dick and you like have those credentials but you aren't cool that's (laughs) not gonna take you very far if you don't don't take advantage of the world that you're yeah or the the world in the situation you're putting yourself in yeah I know there are people that go to these colleges and go to art school and then they do the bare minimum and they come out and they're like, why don't, why don't yeah, nobody want to give sure. me a job? Yeah, <laughs> like there's some sort of entitlement that comes with a degree. Yeah. That's certainly not the case yeah. because, yeah. boy, I would be a lot less tired <laughs> if like having degrees helped me, Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's so funny. And I feel like that's like unique to art too because I feel like there are a lot of fields that you can go into and just do the bare minimum, get your degree, and you're, like, set. You get a job. <laughs> like, yeah, and you're, like, done. Thing. Like, my brother just did that. Yeah. Like, and he's good. Oh, <laughs> like, lucky. He, yeah, he majored in informatics, like, within the engineering school. Oh. Uh, he just graduated in May, and he got, like, a great job. And he's, like, he's just, and like, he's the worst. <laughs> he, and he's a jerk. Like, he is a dick. <laughs> like, and he's, like, killing it at life. And I'm, like, yeah. I'm, like, it's cool. I'm 25, still in the middle of my undergrad. It's fine. I'm yeah. fine. But the arts, you do have to be a good person yeah do. Like, well, or you have yeah. to be like really super talented yeah, yeah. um and, and sometimes then people will tolerate you yeah i mean like and i'm not trying to say that they can't go hand in hand yeah. but like talent sometimes is cheap yeah and more times than not it's like are you interesting are you asking interesting questions yeah and are you able to bring people in to dialogue mm-hmm. that i think is what's interesting about certain creatives where you know i want to see more i want to see more of your work and i want to like yeah. share more opportunities with you you're the whole package you know like you're interesting and kind and talented and all the yeah. stuff you know yeah and the degrees don't necessarily that's not the most interesting thing to me mm-hmm. it's more about how you show up mm-hmm. absolutely we got i think we got on a tangent i don't remember where we were in the- <laughs> i like this tangent though yeah um, it's good i think it you were kind of getting to the end of your yeah so your admissions job 
Admissions. I ended up in my last couple of years working there, working with some pretty fantastic people that all had their MFAs. Mm -hmm. And they were working artists and arts administrators, and um, they really encouraged me as I started to show more of an interest in graduate school, they encouraged me to apply. And that was really cool. So mm -hmm. that kind of positive peer pressure in a way where yeah. it's like, this is something that you want to do, you can do it. Um, they encouraged me. And um, I was really interested in getting my MFA because I wanted to, um, I thought I wanted to be a professor. And so I ended up applying to grad schools, getting into ASU, coming and moving out to Phoenix. And um, then the administrative stuff never ended because I was awarded a teaching fellowship and eventually a research fellowship mm -hmm. that ended up turning into a job with the ASU Art Museum mm -hmm. and effectively kind of working as property manager, project manager, and artist support team, like a singular, yeah. all of those things in one person. Yeah. A lot of hats. Um, yeah, if you're working mm -hmm. in the arts, though, you have to wear mm -hmm. a lot of hats, yeah. especially, I think, in administration. For totally. Sure. And yeah. nonprofit. I mean, yeah. most arts yeah. jobs are nonprofit, and there's not a lot of capacity, there's not a huge budget, and you just have to sort of do it all. Mm -hmm. The three years that I worked for ASU Art Museum, I had a taste in everything, where it was like figuring out the budget, Mm -hmm. uh, that I had to work with to basically help maintain and run the International Artist Residency Program, and then also managing people's schedules, thinking about travel timelines. I mean, mm -hmm. I did things like coordinating housekeeping yeah. um, to uh, literally helping and eventually working as a project manager for huge projects that were <laughs> started by artists. Um, and that was also a primer for me of like, oh, okay. I learned about this thing, you know, you learn about these things in school, like social practice. Yeah. But then it's sort of like in a vacuum yeah. when you're in a class. And then getting to be introduced to some amazing artists that were doing that work. Again, it, it was being a, an artist support role, just figuring out and doing a lot of admin work. Mm -hmm. And admin work really was like budgets, paperwork, scheduling. Uh, creating programs mm -hmm. that went along with uh, exhibitions or that went along with residency periods of time, you know, so an artist was here for a couple of months and setting up programs and then also figuring out ways to connect artists to the city. So I had to learn a lot about Phoenix and the Valley in order to be a, an effective resource person. Mm -hmm. And so this sure. was when you were still at ASU though, right? At ASU. At the museum. Mm -hmm. At the ASU Art Museum. And then in that time there, I got to I made friends with people at other institutions because there was a lot of institutional partners that, yeah. you know, multiple organizations coming together to either sponsor a resident artist or to sponsor an exhibition, stuff like that. Through those friendships, I was uh, made aware of an opportunity working for the city of Phoenix and I applied for it mm -hmm. and I got that job. So now I work doing communications and community engagement with the Office of Arts and Culture and it's funny because it's the first time that I've actually been given that title, but it's always work that I have done. Yeah. Just because it's like wearing, you know, like you said, wearing all the hats and just mm -hmm. doing it. Practical kind of public relations stuff and website, social media, all of that. Yeah. And then figuring out ways to connect people with resources. Yeah. So you mentioned that when you decided to apply to get your master's, you were thinking about going into teaching Mm -hmm. And do you feel that, you know, going into administration and continuing your career that you've 
kind of already established up to this point in administration? Do you feel like uh, you're making the same impact or making more of an impact or less of an impact? Or how do, how is that trade-off between leaving behind this vision of a teaching career in the arts for what mm-hmm. you do now? Yeah, um, man, I have to check in with that a lot, actually. And it's not like I'm pining to have to be, you know, a faculty member somewhere. It's more of pining for opportunities to just be in a learning and teaching space with yeah. people. And um, I don't I don't see it as a full trade-off except for, like, you know, how I get paid, I guess. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I was able, um, through the community engagement side of things, I'm able to be at a table with, with people and still share my knowledge mm-hmm. and... Um, and educate people about like these systems that are you know that need to be navigated through if you want grant funding or if you want to apply for um, a public art commission things like that so I feel like in a way I am always teaching or educating Mm -hmm. but I guess I didn't choose teaching because admin roles just came at me and in order to navigate the higher ed teaching world there are certain things that you have to put in place and there's very little gray area. It's like in order to even be looked at, you've got to have three years teaching experience, a teaching portfolio, Mm -hmm. you know, teaching pedagogy, things that are like really concrete. You have to have examples of classes that you've created and and syllabi and all sorts of stuff. And it's like, I was working on that and I thought I could do it. But then, like, the whole admin thing, there's just always a need for it, too. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, I don't need to write a syllabus. I just need to, like, make a timeline and, like, get it done. Like, yeah, budgets, that's yeah. easy. <laughs> like, make a scope of, for a project and then, like, think about, okay, well, when do you need to have it done? How much money is there? Okay, let's yeah. figure it out. Um, it just seemed a lot more practical to me. Yeah. I seized the opportunities to do that, whereas teaching, since I didn't, continue with my teaching fellowship it's a ta ship basically mm-hmm. a teaching assistantship at asu it almost it almost kind of changed the course entirely yeah for me wow. to not be able to like get back into it that's crazy so I'm, I'm kind of familiar with what it takes to go further in academia you know i've built relationships with some of the grad students when i was there mm-hmm. and i've seen people kind of talk about how difficult it is. I didn't realize that, you know, by not accepting a teaching assistantship or something Mm -hmm. like that can totally throw you off track. Because that's really the only time that you are able to get that academic experience in that kind of setting. Unless you're going to try really hard to adjunct at a community college, which Which they want the same thing. (laughs) Exactly. They do. They want the same thing. And then those those jobs are really competitive. And even if they're that competitive then you just like have to hope and pray that those classes make. And I think there's a really nice network of alumni that teach in the Valley. Mm -hmm. And they're often making sure that everyone is aware of opportunities. We also, I mean, this city, this metro area is full of so many community colleges and creative and and artistic programs that like I didn't study graphic design but if a graphic design um course was made available I could whip up a syllabus and and try to teach it sort of a thing or I studied printmaking 
there's a litho class that's available or an etching class. I'm not the expert at that. Yeah. I didn't become a master printmaker, but I could figure out how to teach those classes yeah. because I have enough skills in both teaching and in printmaking to mm -hmm. do so. Does that mean that I should? Probably not. <laughs> you know, yeah. me personally. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it did seizing more opportunities for admin roles did kind of change the course of things for me. Mm -hmm. But I'm always sort of holding out that like my life experience over the next many years might be valuable enough to figure out how to teach a class I in the future. I think so. I think there's been an, an increasing awareness of the void that is in many art programs of not being aware of how do you actually approach these opportunities mm -hmm. and how do you um, present yourself professionally because at least in my experience in studio art the faculty there they do they have built you know strong portfolios like huge professional careers but they don't really know how to teach that part they know how to teach the art they don't know how right. to teach, how to apply to grants, how to, oh, gosh. Um, yeah. or even just things like soft skills, like how to send emails that don't sound shitty. Like, oh my god, yeah, yeah, oh my god, that's huge. That's <laughs> or like, like, or picking up the phone when yeah. someone calls and or calling back. comfortable calling yeah. back, like how to be a person. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and it's not like okay, so how is it? How is an art teacher supposed to teach you that? Mm -hmm. But that really is a mentorship. It's feeling comfortable. Yeah. It's knowing, hey, you gotta call people back, or you sent an email, then follow up. Yeah, you know, like people are busy, and it right. doesn't mean that they don't care or they don't like you. It's like you open it, it, it. Yeah, like, or they yeah. did read it and they said they were going to get back to it. Right. And then right. they, I do that. I do they like do a response. I like can't <laughs> Even just thinking about emails now, I'm like, I'm so sorry, everybody out there who's waiting for me to reply back to an email. <laughs> yeah, it's. Just it's dangerous but yeah let's get out of email territory yeah, that's <laughs> so true. so it's definitely it sounds like it's just totally different so I guess so I want to ask a question I'm not sure how to formulate it but um you're obviously reaching a very different audience through your career you're not teaching college students you're teaching the community what is that like just to send you um, an, a vague open-ended yeah, question. Yeah, what's that like? Well, it's really hard, for one. And socially, the kind of burden, I think, I don't even know how to describe it, but there is not an end to this kind of work. There is never an end. Or I, I, I can't perceive it. It's just mm -hmm. I stop and I go to sleep. <laughs> um, there's just not an end to what it means to think about working with community members mm -hmm. and work and and finding ways to support them. And I fail all the time. I fail every single day because if I don't reach everybody or don't make sure that everything is translated into yeah. Spanish or don't, you know, there's like ways to engage and there's ways to like press in. And so I, f I feel that burden very deeply. There's not enough hours in the day to do this work to my expectations. Yeah. And so the challenge is when to stop. Mm -hmm. And also when to think about, okay, I need to stop and maybe retrain or train in something specific that's going to help me build a stronger foundation to do this next thing better. And so, you know, the impact is I'm not teaching in a classroom. I'm getting to engage with people and oftentimes engaging with people is giving me some 
some inspiration and fuel mm-hmm. for the work that I do in studio. Yeah. Thinking a little bit more about the world and about, you know, communities that I float in and out of, the communities mm-hmm. that I'm a part of, and how that affects my creative practice. Yeah. It sounds like your job is very taxing in both good and difficult ways. Mm-hmm. How do you use that in your practice and not only that but how do you manage the time and the energy to distribute to both i could manage things better i have a day job and i basically work nine to five and i often am going to events or community meetings and other things after five Mm -hmm. and i find a way to muster some more energy and i go to studio and after after, your community meetings mm -hmm, yep Sometimes I'm just in studio and I clean. Sometimes I go to studio and I just, and I start writing lists or or writing words down or whatever. But something that's really helped me is like the practical, is asking for deadlines and um, seeking out opportunities. For example, I have a two-person show coming up in November. And so that's a hard deadline. That stuff has to get done. Mm -hmm. And so right now, the motivation that I have when I go to studio is focused on that, among a couple of other deadline stuff that I have going on. So the work, like job work life, and then studio work life is, um, I don't know, I'm I'm kind of frantic. I, I just have to, I use my calendar. I often say like, oh, I left my brain on my desk, you know? I use Wonderlist, which is a task managing app, and I've got work stuff (laughs) and I've got studio stuff. Yeah, Um, I have Wonderlist as well. I think I need a task manager for all my task managers, though, at this point. Oh my god, that's so stressful. (laughs) Like, just thinking about that in your life stresses me out. Well, it's funny because it's like, my intention is using using Wonderlist, using my calendar, using Wonderlist, and then I also have my Google Drive stuff. I Mm -hmm. almost almost exclusively use Google Drive for all of my stuff. So I can easily share it. I've got it on my phone, so if somebody needs something last minute, I can, like, still share it while I'm mobile. But... I know that I'm like pushed against the ropes when I'm like, I've got my phone on me, I've got a computer, I've got this and that, and I'm grabbing a Sharpie and writing a note on my arm. Yeah. Because it's like, like, do not forget. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And like, at the end of the day, those like embarrassing moments where it's like at the end of the day, I just like crash and I'm in bed and I wake up the next morning, that note on my arm is transferred onto my body, like another part of my body or onto the sheets in bed or something like that. It's just like... I need I need to take a break. Yeah. And, and you know, and the other thing is understanding when to be like, hey, this is so cool. I cannot say yes to this yeah. right now. And that is a balance that I am starting to implement. And I'm also really privileged in the sense that like I know so many cool creative people and I'm getting to know more and more all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like you guys. Mm-hmm. But when I learn about opportunities that someone's like, hey, would you do this? I can be like thank you so much for thinking about me. I think you would love to meet my new friend, Amanda. Yeah. You know? And like, <laughs> I would be like, and here's another person. Exactly. No. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I definitely have had to turn down. I think, well, and we can cut this out because it's probably not interesting because it's not art related. But in addition to art, now that I'm in business, in the business world, I navigate the business world every day, people are also throwing me like freelance marketing jobs. And mm-hmm. I would prefer to take 
art jobs right. if people want to throw them at me. But mm-hmm. I've had to turn down kind of like when you think about it, like a lot of money just yeah. because I don't have the time. Yeah. And I know somebody that would probably could use the money a little better. Mm-hmm. Um it's very important to kind of have that network to yeah. funnel things through. Totally. And, I mean, I'm a firm believer in, like, a rising tide lifts all ships. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I have so many amazing girlfriends in town that are wildly talented, it's like, yeah, why don't you tag any of these 25 other people mm-hmm. that are just as equipped and willing to work? And all of us can have opportunities. Yeah. I guess I I still feel very much like an emerging artist and thinking about always wanting to say yes to opportunities that are presented to me Mm -hmm. because it's like, what if I don't get another one, you know? Or like, if I don't say yes, someone else is and then they're going to have the opportunity and I don't. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also having to weigh the fact that what does saying yes mean? Does this align with maybe research or conceptual stuff that I'm thinking about in studio? and Or do I have to somehow step out of myself in order to make this work for me? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so there's that, like the internal thing is making sure that I remind myself it's okay to have to say no to something or to really be able to ask for some time to think about, does this fit with my timeline? Will I be able to do my best with the time that they've given? And if it's a paid opportunity, which hopefully it would be, is this actually valuing my time? Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, you know, sometimes still recently, things come up and I'm like, huh, I had to learn the hard way. I can't say yes to this again. Yeah. Because in fact, I know somebody might say, yeah, it's a four-hour commitment, but maybe that it's it's actually eight hours because of prepping and planning and conceptualizing and just preparing artistically to yeah. get into a space. <clears throat> and then I guess like the challenge of uh, pursuing my creative goals is to make sure that I'm constantly writing or establishing those goals. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's a no-brainer, but the act of saying in one year or in 12 months, I would like to be doing this, making this, living here, rolling with these people, whatever it is. Sometimes you have to just establish what that is or else you're just going to be kind of going with the flow. And sometimes that flow is like a frigging, you know, rough, choppy tide or whatever and wake and you're just like being bounced around super frantic, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's not very healthy. Do you ever feel the concern of I guess, losing relevancy when you say no to too many opportunities. Yes, I do. So right now, I'll say this, in January or the end of last year, the end of 2017, I said I need to have four key opportunities to feed into my creative practice, my studio practice, in 2018. Mm -hmm. And I set that intention. That was one of my goals. And I'm achieving it right Mm -hmm. now. And so that was being in group shows, finding an opportunity for a solo show. And then something that I didn't expect and I didn't really account for was having an opportunity to do a public art piece. Mm -hmm. And that has not only introduced me to new research methodologies because that public art project is in 
a city and in a community that I was not previously familiar with. So practicing what I preach and trying to understand place and the significance of the built environment before I start adding to that built environment. Mm -hmm. And then, and also respecting community and letting them share and sort of guide the process of me creating for public consumption, essentially. is what public art is. It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, for a private collection that will be shut away. It's meant for everybody to appreciate 24-7. So I feel lucky for that, but I definitely know that in order to make my studio practice sustainable, I might have to make a hard decision about this bivocational way that I've been working so far. I'm not getting any younger and I have desires to just be my own boss at some point. Mm -hmm. I need to create the conditions where I don't feel like I have to sacrifice my creative practice for the pursuit of a title or something like that, you know? Yeah, or just stability. Or stability, right? right. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to have that through my creative practice. Mm-hmm. And I think I can do it. The way that I've figured out my life right now or the way that I'm living it is I'm trying to save money. And while I'm still young and, you know, working as a professional, figuring out how to strategize, I guess, you know, so eventually maybe I can have, I can swing the pendulum in another direction with like focusing more on creative production. The more that I'm embedding myself into creative production and also what that work looks like outside of a private studio practice, the stuff that I'm interested in researching and talking about through my artwork has a lot to do with how people relate to each other in a built environment in a city and even, you know, thinking about the built environment being a residential space Mm -hmm. and where circles of trust are, intimate spaces, what does it mean to exist in a public space and have a private moment? All sorts of things like that flood my mind. And I think about that, especially with in relation to, you know, existing as a marginalized, historically marginalized person in the United States. Mm -hmm. Not only am I historically marginalized because I'm a woman, I'm a woman of color, I'm Puerto Rican, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a colonized subject, that I am constantly in the process of figuring out what it means to not be colonized and to decolonize my mind, you know, Um, which is, I think, going to always be an evolving process. Mm -hmm. And with that said, I feel like the more exposed I am to this conversation through artistic and creative production, the more exposed I am to circles that either don't want to talk about that or that it's maybe difficult to find exhibition opportunities or I find, you know, maybe that's not that's not actually the case. It's more so the people who are controlling some spaces, the people who control funding, the people who are giving opportunities, you know, exceptional opportunities often don't look like me. Yeah. yeah and, sure. you know, they're decidedly older they're decidedly male. Um, oftentimes funding streams are, you know, coming from older, white, male, straight, even even foundations and organizations that the decision makers of their organizations, they don't, I'm not represented in mm-hmm. those spaces. And so to think about how opportunities can be presented and expanded for more people that are like us at the table. So whether you know we have formal education or not, I think arts and culture experiences should be for everyone. Mm-hmm. And what does what does everyone look like? We live in Phoenix, Arizona. 
where 40% of the people who live here speak Spanish as a first language. Why don't we have more materials that are just automatically in Spanish? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And why don't we have more spaces that are less so, I mean, art spaces are often these like strange sacred spaces, mm -hmm. you know, having to have museum hands or can I touch this or can I walk in here or how do I act when I walk in here? Are these spaces for me? Yeah. Yeah. I like stopping and processing and thinking, what does it feel like to be in a space where the music playing, you know, reminds me of home growing up mm -hmm. or all of a sudden I can be in spaces and speak Spanglish and I know everybody's understanding each other versus spaces where I feel like I have to, you know, like posture myself in this way that's like maybe acquiescing to some respectable or like respectability politics way of being. Yeah. White spaces. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that is like super present in the art world. I think here in Phoenix, we're really lucky that people are creating more and more spaces to invite people in. Yeah. And having open dialogues with other artists and culture workers of color that are doing work that are also bivocational like me, mm -hmm. where they're maybe they have a day job and then they're, they're also doing cultural production. And just immediately, I don't know, I love just like rolling in different circles and being able to just cut to the chase with people yeah. instead of it being like, hey, what are you up to? It's sort of like, yeah, we know, I see you, I get the struggle that you're dealing with. How can I be here to support you creating spaces? Yeah, I mean, obviously my day job is in the startup world and I just feel like I can have these conversations with my creative peers and that's something that in that zone, it's so ignored. Mm. And when I speak up, I don't necessarily feel ignored, but at the same time, it's like a lot of people in the business world and in the startup world here, they're now just barely trying to introduce the idea that there's a disproportionate number of female founders, much mm -hmm. less there's not that conversation about anything other than gender there. But it, like, I totally oh, know, yeah. I know what you mean by these spaces. One, because I look young and I am young and I'm usually the youngest person in the room, mm -hmm. but two, I'm also a young woman of color, and whether or not people are willing to look down on me for that, there's still that kind of tension that I'm the only person that is like that in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I felt like that was one of the biggest shocks for me, like going back to school last year. Mm -hmm. and it was like a culture shock. I don't know, there's like a, we talked about this a little bit too, because I had that. Or do you um, feel like your, your background and history is not represented there. And yeah, I think it's mostly in what I've actually learned this year. I had a design history class and I like loved it. It was so interesting because we went back to the industrial revolution up to now and we got to see like the progression of things and it was fascinating and I learned about all kinds of designers and architects and everybody we learned about. I think there was one exception and it was Zaha Hadid mm -hmm. um, and everybody else was white. Mm -hmm. and almost everybody else was a dude. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yeah, these people made incredible stuff, but it's like, who knows what the world would even look like today had people of color, women, had a voice 50 years ago, 100 years ago. How different would things be? Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't mean that people aren't practitioners. For sure. Yeah. Maybe the voice is there, it's just not given a platform to be heard. Right, yeah. absolutely. When I think about getting used to spaces or challenging spaces, it's like, looking around and kind of feeling like, am I the only brown person in this room? Yeah. Is this a room that I want to invest in? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And being able to create more space, it makes me feel like creativity comes faster, affinity comes faster when 
I'm not having to introduce someone for the first time to the fact that inequities exist. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. exhausting. <laughs> it's just like... Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like oftentimes it's like a conversation that needs to be had, but it's just like, I don't want to do it. I'm just like, I'm so tired. It boils down to me just being like, I shouldn't have to tell you this. And I should be open and patient. But like, mm-hmm. sometimes it's just so hard. Mm-hmm. Like, so. Yeah. That's why I feel like I address some of these things through my artwork sometimes, sometimes more subtly than others. I don't want to always have to be the person to educate a white person about Mm -hmm. systemic inequities. Yeah. I feel it. And what I would love is that to be acknowledged. Yeah. So, you know, if if I could construct a space that all of a sudden is creating the conditions where someone else is more aware of their own body in that space and a space that was not necessarily built for them, Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to spark conversation or even a conversation about how they were feeling to just move forward and say like, so you acknowledge that this exists, you know, how can we parallel that to, you know, the the world, the society that, that we live in and how do we address this and consider creative problem solving or consider ways right. of, of treating each other even incrementally to, to make actual change. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like art has the ability to spark dialogue and conversation. I don't know if art has the ability to save lives. And that's not like a hopeless statement. Yeah. It's just like it, it's a vehicle. Creative practice is a tool of many to consider how to address systemic inequity Mm -hmm. or how to address ways of building a better society. Yeah, it's such a big issue that no matter what, it has to be kind of chipped at from all different angles. And I definitely agree with you that art is one of those tools. Creative expression gives room for imagining a possible future. Mm-hmm. imagining what the current looks like and reimagining a possible future. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's it's a different way to interpret something. If somebody's not getting it by reading about it or if somebody's not getting it by listening to somebody else saying that, maybe they'll get it when they can't fit through a frame that you've built, which is, you know, part of your practice. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you have any other thoughts on how to create more inclusion and more equity in the arts, whether Arizona specifically or, you know, in the art world at large? Yeah, I think it is important to be intentional. And so the same way that I talked about setting an intention with my own personal creative goals, it's just as much work to think about, okay, so how do we think about inclusion? How do we think about creating an equitable situation when when it comes to the arts? you know, sharing opportunities or considering how someone who is a completely uninitiated audience or potential audience person, how would they be introduced to the space? Mm -hmm. And am I creating a welcoming environment for them? Thinking about inclusion, thinking about creating equitable ways to engage as an artist is often assuming a leadership role. Mm-hmm. And I am in a situation right now where I'm starting a collective, a small collective of other culture workers. We're all creative people. And we're thinking about, okay, we have this certain amount of knowledge already. Mm-hmm. What does it look like for us to build a project 
so that we could highlight and support, support artistically and financially more artists of color. Mm -hmm. And in, in so much that they can actually make artwork, you know, in this case, they're visual artists. Yeah. So making artwork and getting paid for it and then supporting that cultural production by finding ways to get their name out there, to get into catalogs, to get into collections, mm -hmm. through that art making, basically. Yeah. So I guess what it is, is I have gained access to information, I've gained access to spaces and knowledge about how things work through systems, through cultural production and organizing things. So if I can make space for more artists of color and for more marginalized artists, you know, so whether they're disabled or whether they're a part of the LGBTQ community and making sure that their voice is heard on a mainstream, I want to be a part of that process too. So not yeah. just absorbing and taking those opportunities just for myself. Yeah, that's super powerful. And I'm excited to see what comes of that. To wrap it up, because we've kind of taken up a lot of your time, what kind of advice would you give to an emergency an emergency artist? <laughs> that should be a thing. That should exist. That should exist. <laughs> oh my god. Like yes. this situation is just so fucked up. Everybody's like devastated. We need somebody <laughs> to make we need art right now. Like, yes, stop what you're doing. Emergencyartist.com. <laughs> Yes. We'll add that to our um, resumes. Yes. <laughs> Emergency artist. Don't even got Queenie excited. That should um, be a thing. Gonna write it down. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, we'll come back to that. So what advice would you give an emerging artist? Maybe it's an emerging artist of color or of a marginalized group um, based on your experience so far. Yeah, I think my, my main advice is finding a support network, seeking out peer mentorship opportunities, so, you know, if you learn about somebody who's doing something cool and they're your age or they're close to your age or stage in life, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes age isn't always the measure of where you're at in life, ask them questions. And so forming a peer mentorship, I think especially as an artist of color, I haven't had a lot of mentorship opportunities of older artists of color. Yeah. I just, I haven't been afforded that opportunity. And then all of my professors and all the other stuff that we've been talking about, yeah. you know, that's definitely been the case for me. Mm -hmm. And so some of those peer mentorships that I've sought out in informal ways, not through a program or anything like that, they've been artists and people who are doing work that I admire. And I'm yeah. just like, hey, can I hang out with you? Can I ask you questions? Can I seek you out for advice? So not staying in your bubble because, mm -hmm. it, you know, it can feel uncomfortable to ask for help or to ask questions and seeking a community or a small group of supporters, you know, people yeah. who are going to encourage you and kind of direct you, someone who you trust to like read over your resume or a statement of purpose or intent before you send it in. Another thing that I would say is find spaces that you enjoy and that you want to be a part of and seek it out, volunteer, do stuff you know, in those spaces with an organization or at a, an arts event or something mm -hmm. like that, just press in and then show up and know your best use. In order to not be tokenized, you have to kind of have an idea of who you are so that you don't let other people define who that is. Yeah. Walk into a space and feel comfortable with who you are before somebody else tells you something otherwise, I guess. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Work hard, show up, yeah. know your best use. Use Wonderlist. <laughs> use Wonderlist. <laughs>
You just made it through the first real episode of Creative Confessionals. We hope you loved hearing from Estrella as much as we did. If you want to connect with her or see her work, you can check out her website, EstrellaPayton.com or at Estralala on Instagram. We'll put all of those links in the show notes. And if you find yourself in Douglas, Arizona in November, then great news. Estrella's work will be on display at Cochise College. Estrella also left us with some great events to check out and get involved with if you live in the Phoenix area. If you happen to be a creative person of color interested in racial equity in the arts, you can check out Artists of Color Organizing for Racial Equity, a monthly meeting hosted by Insight Consulting. We went to the one in July and it was great. Lots of passionate people wanting to make a difference. But if you can't attend, you should still definitely support upcoming work produced by creatives of color like La Finicra Music Festival or The Whole Story at the Phoenix Art Museum. There's also work by Marin Alaka at the Roosevelt Row Shipping Containers on September 7th. Again, all of that awesomeness will be linked in the show notes. Okay, anything else, Amanda? Nope, I think we're good. On the next episode, we're interviewing Melissa Kreider, photographer and founding editor of Don't Smile. Also, if you're a badass lady of color photographer, please consider submitting your work to Color Balance. Deadline is September 24th, and I want to see some fabulous work. Subscribe, rate, give us money, tell everyone in your mama how fucking cool we are, do all the things. Talk to you soon. Goodbye.